a couple of weeks ago, I got an email from a friend named Jonathan Stark. And in the email, he asked if I was familiar with the work of Alfred Adler, because Jonathan had been reading a book that was based on Adler's work and was just really sort of chewing on it in terms of its application to entrepreneurs and mental health. The book that Jonathan was reading was called The Courage to Be Disliked. And it talks a lot about the sort of basic theories that guide Adler's work, specifically the struggles with inferiority, superiority, and social interest. So rather than have this lengthy email exchange with Jonathan, I (laughs) said, hey, let's talk about this and let's make it a podcast. Some of you may be familiar with Jonathan's work. He is just an incredibly insightful and resourceful person when it comes to rethinking how we price things. So he's really helped a lot of people shift from hourly-based consulting work to value-based pricing and has great ways of talking about that and thinking about that. So if you are curious about his work, definitely check him out at jonathanstark.com. But generally, a very, very insightful, thoughtful person and a really great person to have this deep dive into this topic with. I hope you enjoy our conversation surrounding individual psychology, the courage to be disliked, and the work of Alfred Adler. Welcome to the Zen Founder Podcast. This is a place where we have conversations about mental health and entrepreneurship. We have a pretty broad conceptualization of what mental health means, sometimes depression, anxiety, sometimes relationships or physical health. The goal here is to bring some calm into the crazy roller coaster of ups and downs that is life for many entrepreneurs. I'm your host, I'm Dr. Sherry Walling. I'm a clinical psychologist and an entrepreneur, married to an entrepreneur, live in the world of entrepreneurs, and I'm so pleased that you have joined us for this conversation. You were stopped because you were so like, so taken with this book that you'd read called The Courage to Be Disliked. Is that correct? Right. That's correct. And it's sort of a kind of a Socratic Plato style delivery of this guy, Alfred Adler. And he was, this is just my layman's understanding. He was kind of a contemporary of Freud and thoroughly disagreed with Freud. Yeah. They had this huge like falling out around Freud's emphasis on the first five years of life. So basically that development is complete in the first five years. And Adler was like, no, 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 There's more time to grow. Right. And so I found that really, like that premise alone was really fascinating to me because, you know, because Freud, I feel like, at least where I grew up, Freud's theories or whatever you want to call it is just part of culture. It's just taken for granted. And this other approach from someone who is also smart, lived at the same time, completely opposite, I've never really heard of before. So I was like, oh, that's kind of fascinating. So, you know, the book is delivered like this you know, Socrates, Plato style philosopher talking to a young student and the young student completely disagrees with him. The young student's really unhappy. He feels like he's defined by his past or he's kind of a prisoner to his personality almost. And there's nothing that could be done about this. It's ridiculous. And what's the point of of trying and all that sort of thing? Kind of like, you know, he kind of exemplifies a victim, what I would call a victim mentality. And the philosopher, the older guy, just slowly but politely and through questioning deconstructs it completely and pr- and provides kind of like an alternate worldview. And there are a bunch of things in there that kept me reading. And so a lot of stuff I was kind of like, eh, I don't know. But it would kind of win me over 
maybe win me over, maybe not, but there were a few things that completely hit a home run with me because they map exactly to experiences that I've been having the past couple of years as I've moved into a coaching practice. Because prior to that, I was a consultant doing B2B consulting. And it, to be honest, there were some psychological aspects to like getting teams to trust you and stuff and like, yeah, getting an outsider, you know, who's this guy, you know, coming in and telling us what to do. So there was some kind of like social people skills there, but nothing on the level of dealing with someone one on one about things like imposter syndrome and perfectionism and all of these like, you're doing a deep dive into human psychology. So yeah, and my skill level basically is drill sergeant kind of like, no, just do it. Like, stop whining. (laughs) (laughs) And that works sometimes. Sometimes. And sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes it doesn't. And so so I'm faced with that challenge and knowing that I have that challenge and I want to figure out something to do there. Like, so when the boot in the butt doesn't work, then what? Because I don't want to just be like, oh, sorry. Do you have a refund policy? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so there's like a lot of things in the book that I, I was like, oh, wow. I don't know if this works, but this exactly addresses the thing that I've been experiencing. I want to hear your key takeaways, but first I want to ask you why you picked up this particular book title in the first place. Like the courage to be disliked. Is there, was there a specific problem you were trying to solve? No, it was a recommendation I heard someone mention on a podcast and the title absolutely grabbed me. That's a good question. So coincidentally, right before I heard about this book, I had gotten an email from someone who, you know, was running a podcast course. I was like, you're going to launch a podcast in five days. Stop scrolling around. This is it. You're going to finally do it. And people were like, oh yeah, great. I've been thinking about doing a podcast. Let's finally do it. And one of the emails that I got was from someone who, you know, smart guy and was his reaction to the challenge, because I called it the podcast challenge. His reaction was, oh, I'd love to do that, but I worry about all the hate mail. And I was like, hate mail? Like, what's your podcast going to be about? And so I said, who's going to send you hate mail? And he replied, he's like, well, I mean, not hate mail, but, you know, that I would be judged. And I was like, okay, judged by whom? Also, like a really big gap between those things. Giant gap, right. Completely unexamined reaction. I was like, hate mail, okay. And then, and then, and he's like, well, I would be judged. And then I was like, by whom? And he's like, well, I don't know. Maybe no, myself. Finally, he, he said, probably just myself. And then I heard about this Courage to be Disliked book. And it's always been my policy that if you're doing anything interesting, someone's going to rag on you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So if you cannot be, you can't be afraid of the haters and the critics, or you'll just never do anything interesting. So, you know, there's a, a great quote. I'm like an 80s metal kid. So there's like a, a quote from David Lee Roth. He's like, if you stick your head up above the crowd, eventually someone's going to throw a rock at it. And I've always loved that. So it's like, look, people are going to throw rocks at you. It doesn't mean to stop doing what you're doing. It means you're probably doing something right. So then I, I heard about this book and the courage to be disliked completely mapped to that that attitude of like, I'm afraid of the haters thing. Right, this phenomenon that you're observing in this person. Right. And the style of the book is very engaging because it's this dialogue. So that's that's what caused me to, to read it. And then I just read the whole thing in one day. Oh, cool. It, it, for some reason, it's, it's mapping onto Rilke's like letters to a young poet for me, like this correspondence between a question asker and a, a thinker who's who's sort of gently guiding someone along in their path. It's, it's a really interesting sort of framework for a book. Yeah, it's very effective. So what were the things that really grabbed you? First thing, I think it was the first main premise of the book, and it was the most anti-Freud one, was that you're not defined by your past and that people can change and that, yes, those things happened to you and, yes, they were bad, but what are you going to do? You know, how are you going to react to those things? Are you just going to be stuck with them forever? Like, 
well, okay, I guess I'm damaged goods. Right. I'm done by the time I'm four. Like I'm done cooking and the dominoes are just going to fall in that direction. Right. I mean, it's just a belief system, I guess. And maybe I'm, maybe I'm optimistic, but I just can't agree with that. Like on principle, I might, I might be wrong, but I'm just not going to agree with that. Yeah, it's so interesting because it is one of Freud's most radical ideas and the idea that has spurned the most conversation in the psychological community. In some ways, it's important and it's positive because really before Freud, nobody like gave a crap about what happened to kids. And there was not this acknowledgement that what does happen to you in the first three to five years of life is extraordinarily important, which now that we have the tools of like cognitive neuroscience, we know that what does happen to you in the first three to five years of life is extraordinarily important when you think about the trajectory of your life, of your body, even at a cellular level, your body's capacity to handle stress is in many ways set up by the time you're five. So Freud's had this really roller coaster and not sorry, not to give you a mini lecture, but it, it's so fascinating because he's had this like really, you know, tumultuous relationship with the psychological community as they've reacted to him. In some ways, he was really right. And then of course, in some ways, he was really wrong. But I think he even knew he was wrong because his whole premise in engaging in treatment was under some pretense that things could change or be different. Otherwise, what's the point of treatment? It's like, hey, sorry, you suck. Go live on an island for imperfect people. I mean, right. Yeah. So you get dealt this bad hand. And it's so easy for me to say because I hit the freaking lottery when I was born. I mean, like in the United States, like every advantage. So it's really easy for me to say. And I certainly wouldn't want to minimize any kind of trauma that people had when they were younger. But still, it's like, okay, that happened. And it's awful. But do you want to move forward? Like, do you want to be happy? Well, given the parameters that you're working with, what's the best possible outcome? Yeah. So we don't say it doesn't matter, at least in my sort of my version of this conversation. We don't say it doesn't matter, but we say, okay, those are the variables that you're playing with. Then, Then what? Then what do we construct from there? Right. And obviously you can point to plenty, you can call them edge cases, but you can point to plenty of people who had just horrible upbringings that ended up being world leaders and just have amazing outcomes from that. But I don't think that's a persuasive argument for a lot of people, but you can see examples of it. The outliers. Yeah. Right. You know, I don't know. I just, it's just a poor belief of mine that it's like, there's a reason to keep striving. So that was, that was huge because it, the way that, and the way the book was written, the student was kind of led to water as they would have put it in the book. You know, it's like, I can't make you drink, but I can lead you to the water. And I can tell you when you're wrong about understanding these theories, which kind of gets into one of my big takeaways from the book. The, but the first one, to answer your question, the first one was that you're not just completely defined by your past. You can still like that thing happened. Now, what are you going to do? What's your reaction to it? Yeah, I love that one. So yeah, so that was that was a big one. Cool. So the second takeaway was a big one near the end of the book, which I have not thoroughly processed, but I do see evidence of in just my past experience. But having kids, this is a really hard one to swallow, because I have a 10 year old and a six year old. And it's basically the carrot stick thing. So like, which is a better motivator carrot or stick? And the Adlerian approach is neither you should be building horizontal relationships, not vertical relationships, because vertical relationships are inherently like dependent, I guess. It's like mutually dependent. It's weird. It's, I haven't got my head completely around it, but it does map to something in the coaching world. There's sort of the two types, broadly speaking. There's the cheerleader type. It's like, yeah, you're doing a great job. 
But by saying that, you're saying I'm better than you. I'm in a position to judge whether or not what you're doing is good or bad. And I've, that has never sat well with me. It's like, who am I? Like, I mean, on the one hand, I need to be able to say with confidence that there's a better way to do something given your circumstances, or I can see that you're doing self, something self-destructive or something like that. So on the one hand, you want that kind of mentory, coachy thing where like, you know, let, let's take a golf coach, like a golf coach, somebody that's been coaching golf for years and has great results coaching people in the past and they, they and I come along and I can't barely golf, they're going to say, here's a hundred things you're doing wrong in your swing. If what you want to do is have a 300 yard drive, you're got to change a bunch of things. So it's this weird paradox between like, how do you, how do you be a teacher, but on a horizontal level, like a horizontal playing field? Yeah. I mean, I think moving away from that evaluative good and bad I, as someone in sort of a, a vertically more powerful position, pass judgment on what you're doing and moving into a space of that more suggestive, like, huh, I wonder how it would work if you tilt your wrist a little to the left and like, is that more efficient for you? It's sort of that co-constructing improvement or co-constructing more efficiency rather than the, yeah, that sort of top-down model. Right. So which doesn't map very well to my drill sergeant approach. So the drill sergeant approach is kind of the stick, you know, just do it. Come on, shut up, do it. Stop whining. And then there's the other side, which is like, come on, you can do it. And if you do, you're going to get these rewards. And then there's this, then there's the approach that, I mean, the key phrase for me that I feel like is threads the needle there is what if that is the key? Like, what if you tried this and let them sort of be like, huh, okay. So that one, that one I'm still processing and it's really hard with kids because it's like, I mean, it's very clear, you know, if I was going to subscribe to this ideology or methodology, or philosophy, whatever you want to call it, if I was going to subscribe to it, it would mean not saying good job to my kids, which is, it very clearly states. And I'm like, don't say good job, which does map on a little bit and not to jump psychological theory too much, but it does map on a little bit to the recommendations in terms of supporting a growth mindset in kids, which is not to evaluate the outcome of something like, oh, you got an A, good job, but is to support the effort or the creativity or the ingenuity, or which is to say something like, hey, you seem really satisfied with how that worked out, or you seem really proud of your test score. And emphasizing that it's the, the controllable effort within a child and the emotional feedback loop that the child experiences that's more reinforcing than a parental sort of thumbs up or thumbs down. Right. It's funny because it's I can see logically that them doing something for our approval leads directly to the fear of being disliked later. Because if you're doing stuff for the approval, then you're going to listen to your critics too much, in my opinion. And so it's like, okay, but these are kids. And then it's like, okay, but at what point do I teach them? Like, what's the age when you stop or if you ever did it? At what age does it make sense to switch into like, hey, it's not about whether or not I like it. It's about whether or not you feel that picture is good, or you're happy with your with the outcome there. Because I can see the direct mapping of, you know, and we homeschool because we're, we're like not into the kind of, uh, as Seth Godin would say, the educational industrial complex, at, at least in our town. Hey, man, we all homeschool now. <laughs> but yeah, we also have homeschooled at least one child for many, many years. So I yeah, and that like kind of reward system, the A, like, oh, you got your A because you memorized the things. And I'm like, how does that map to the future that's probably probably coming? 
because there's going to be no rule book for stuff. How do you raise a child to be able to kind of make their own rules and have their own, not reward system, but like fulfillment without the thumbs up, thumbs down from some outside party, whether it's a parent or a bunch of people in YouTube comments, like how do you not care too much about that stuff? And like, how do you, how do you raise a kid to, to have that kind of, I mean, I guess you could call it a thick skin, but it's similar to thick skin behavior. It's internal motivation. You know, Adler was really interesting in that he was one of the sort of early thinkers about this that really emphasized relationship as a primary motivator. And again, sort of contrasted to Freud's drive model of psychosexual development or even like libido, ego, superego, that conflict within someone. But Adler was really interested in what he called, well, the translation of his term at least is social interest. So, you know, your child is is striving to please you, but a higher order, I guess, outcome is that your child is both pleasing themselves and enjoying that sense of being recognized and known and seen, not merely evaluated. It's like a higher order emotional connection that motivates human behavior more than a thumbs up or thumbs down. Yeah. And it, I wasn't even going to bring this up, but you're kind of segueing into a topic toward the end of the book. So the whole sort of beginning of the book, I mean, what's it called? The psychology of individual psychology, right? It's about, it's very subjective, which is, that's my other big takeaway from the book is I've always considered reality to be hundred percent subjective. And my main thing that I teach is pricing and, and value is thoroughly 100% couldn't be more subjective. Like how much is that coffee worth from Starbucks? Well, you line up 10 people and they're going to give you 10 answers. It depends on how much of a hurry I'm in, how late I was up, how many like difficult challenges I'd had with my children that day. That coffee can get really expensive real fast for me. Yeah, you'll pay 12, 20, 50 bucks for that thing pretty quick. In some situations, yes. Yeah. I mean, the classic example is the beer at the ballpark. You could buy like three six packs for the price of one 12 ounce beer at a Red Sox game. But why does anybody do that? It's it's crazy. But what something is worth, its value is different from person to person. And it's different from situation to situation, even in the same person. And so like, how do you rationalize that? And to me at this point, it's just like thoroughly obvious that, well, like what something's worth is not a, an aspect of the object. It's not an intrinsic feature of the product. A 73 Camaro is not worth $10,000. I wouldn't, I don't even want that car. It's worth nothing to me. It's worth less than nothing. I'd pay someone to take it off my yard, but it might be worth that much to someone or a bunch of people. And therefore you get a Kelly Blue Book value of $10,000 for a particular model of car. Our language is set up in a way that, that blurs that fact. It blurs the fact that there's a difference between this particular make and model of car in this condition is worth $10,000. Well, no, that's not true you can probably get $10,000 for it from someone is really what that means. But it is not worth $10,000 as if that's a truth. It doesn't have intrinsic absolute value. Correct. Right. And then I map that back to people who charge for their time. Like my hours were $300. I'm like, no, it's not. Would it be worth $300 if you were washing a car? No. It might be if you're doing a session with them, a therapy session or a personal training session or a tattoo session. It might be worth $300, but that's, you wouldn't pay that same person $300 to wash your car. And it's because you're not buying the time that they're spending with you. You're buying the service. The value that they bring to you. Yes. 
to you. The subjectivity of all of this and the psychology behind it. Right. So then if you take that same thing, which I thoroughly and completely believe, and you map it to just general worldview, like the world, reality, not just value, but reality is subjective, then it's like, okay, that's really interesting. If you lost a sense or you gained a sense, like you all of a sudden you can, you've got ESP, your view of the world is going to change dramatically. It's the same world. All the same stuff is out there outside of you, but now you can read people's minds. So like, whoa, okay, the world is not what I thought, or the world is now changed because it's all in your head. It's like, it comes in through your perceptions. So I'm like, okay, if that's true, and I basically believe that is true. I mean, it kind of, you get into parsing the terminology of like, what's reality, what's objective truth, what are facts, science, all that fake news stuff, like that all comes up. But if you take it as a premise that your world, if you want to call it that, is your perceptions of objective reality, you know, filtered through your senses and your experiences and all the things in your head, then it's fundamentally changeable. One of Adler's philosophies or, or sort of key ideas that might maps onto this for me is this struggle between inferiority and superiority. So this this thing that entrepreneurs and tech folks, we all love to throw around is the imposter syndrome. That's an Adlerian idea. That's this sense of inferiority that we all sort of come loaded with a spectrum of inferiority to superiority in a sense in which we are less than others or a sense in which we're not better than others, but more masterful than others. And, you know, he has all of this philosophy around how this develops in sibling relationships and things like that. But the nature of seeing oneself is relative to how we perceive ourselves in relation to other people, whether we're better at something or worse than something. And it's all very subjective and in flux all the time. And so when we're working with someone, you know, for Adler in, in therapy, for you as a coach, we're helping them to sort of at least change the filters of their subjective positioning, not teach them a new way of seeing that's not necessarily possible, but it's like to, to re-anchor their sense of their own value to use your language in some ways relative to what they offer. Yeah. The whole inferiority thing was just a giant home run for me because I, I hear the words imposter syndrome probably every day from somebody. And my reaction always to that has always been, well, the best way to combat that is to publish whatever the thing is that you're afraid to publish, because it's always a publishing, like, it's always like... Making something public. Yes, public, right. So there's a thing they want to put in the world, and they're like, I don't, I'm afraid of the hate mail, or whatever. And usually I'll be like, I'll kind of walk them through it, like, what's the worst possible thing that could happen? Like, the absolute worst thing. And they're like, well, probably nothing. No one likes it. You know, and they're like, okay, but that doesn't help. It usually doesn't help. Sometimes they'll just like, you know, your eyes closed, like screaming, ah, okay, and they press publish. But it's not, they're not like excited to do it, even though they've kind of rationalized that nothing bad can actually happen. They know, they feel deep down something bad still could happen. They just can't figure out what it is. But the, the thing that I have seen actually makes imposter syndrome go away or at least tones it down is when someone does get the courage. Another thing I loved about the book is that in the title is courage, which I think is a fabulous word. And they get the courage to publish and then they get good feedback. And when I say good feedback, they get feedback from people who say that it helped them. It was useful. And useful is another word that Adler uses a lot. And courage and useful. And both of those things are words that are a major part of my vocabulary. And I was like, oh, wow, this is really clicking. Because if somebody gets feedback from the social community, from the community, that what they put into the community was useful, they're like, oh, like the perfectionism starts to go away. The imposter syndrome starts to go away. The just ship it starts to 
happen more because they've they've got feedback from people. Not that it was thumbs up, thumbs down, good job. It was more like, wow, that really helped. That totally helped me. And then it's like, geez, I kind of owe it to them to keep doing this. And this is so lovely from Adler because he he really nails that what people are striving for is relationship. It's to be a significant contributor to the world around them and to have relationships that matter. And so like you're saying, if someone gives you, if you, if you write something or publish something or put out a podcast and someone says, good job, it's kind of like, cool, thanks. But if someone is like, Hey, that really helped me have this very difficult conversation with one of my clients. And because of that conversation that we had, I'm now, you know, I increased my price by 30%, but we both feel good about it. It's like, damn, like that is a really, that's feedback that we're all craving because we have in all of us that core desire to be useful, which is in Adler's language, this it's superior, but it means mastery. Like it means I've mastered something. I have something to offer the world. I don't sit in uselessness, which is another sort of variation on inferiority or imposter syndrome. Yep. There were two terms that I think feeling of inferiority, I thought it was more concise than that, but there are feelings of inferiority. He was like, these are perfectly normal. And that's what causes you to want to become better. But then if it turns into an inferiority complex, you're paralyzed. And same with superiority. Like if you get a superiority complex, you're sort of stuck in your egoism. But if you have feelings of superiority, it's that sense of like, oh, I'm, I'm good. I have something to offer. I've mastered something. I don't want to put you on the spot too much, but what's the term? Is it, was it superiority, the kind of bully approach? Is that a superiority complex, which is basically just the flip? It's like a, an over worked inferiority complex or like a different kind of reaction to inferiority. Yes. It's the the need to assert superiority so firmly over someone else to sort of bolster one's very fragile sense of value or superiority. It also maps onto narcissism. So if you interacting with someone and you're like, dude, that that person is such a narcissist. Like they are so just full of themselves. Often we think about that as someone who has such a fragile ego that they're working really hard to just collect reinforcement. So I think bullying and or, or just really lots of kind of aggressive, self-centered, selfish behavior is based in in a dysregulation of someone's sense of their own value. Yeah, it just totally made sense. I, I could look back to like tweets I've sent out. There was one that everybody it got a lot of reaction. It was kind of like he who builds his house of cards on like shaky ground is like really nervous about the smallest disturbances. You know, it's like if you've got this big house of cards that you've constructed and someone's shaking the table, you're just going to bark at them and like get away from that. Obviously, the house of cards is kind of like their call it their ego or their worldview or their like it's this thing that they constructed to protect themselves from dealing with perfectly natural feeling of inferiority, which is supposed to make them move forward or help them move forward. They're like, no. And then they construct this reality around it. And if you shake that reality, they freak out. And I think what's what's helpful is the nuance that Adler offers in terms of, yes, you have feelings of inferiority. Of course you do. You're supposed to. That's what gets you up in the morning. Like, like we don't have to sort of fight that or take it all away or be so upset about our own sense of fear or anxiety or fragility. It's like, yeah, of course. But also, so the other side of the spectrum, like, yeah, you have those moments when you're like, I 
I nailed it. I feel so satisfied with my, with my effort or my performance or what I, what I put together. And all of that helps. It's like that whole mixture of across the spectrum, seeing ourselves as both capable and still learning is what helps us to be really strong in our foundation, as opposed to like sort of clenching with both fists onto a story about ourselves that we're either inferior or superior goes wrong in both directions. So the the story part, you just mentioned the story about ourselves. That came up a lot. It was kind of like a, a through line. There's lots of themes around that. And the one that was I rationally understand, but it was and I see the examples, it's still it's kind of hard to swallow in terms of putting into practice, was that someone who's, you know, a shut in, for example, that was the example in the book, they're a shut in, you know, 19 year old kid should be having fun at college or whatever, you know, in a normal time period, should be having fun at college or something like that. But they're shut in and they're just like, they're like in the basement playing World of Warcraft or something. Yeah, and just really needy, independent and like fragile, like, like, not trying to hide it, like, fra- like, extremely fragile, I need help with everything, blah, blah, blah. And the the sort of professor or the philosopher in the book is kind of like, oh, well, that suits... The student is telling a story about a friend who's a shut-in that's like I just described. And the philosopher is like, well, that suits... That serves their goals right now. And if the person changed their goals, then the behavior would evaporate. And the student was like, how could that possibly be his goal? He hates being like that. He's constantly throwing up and nervous. And, you know, everything about it is like extremely uncomfortable. How could he possibly, how could that possibly serve his goals? And then like, here comes the philosopher with a great answer, which is that he's getting back at his parents, basically. Let me guess, he didn't get enough attention as a kid. Yeah, his parents were awful. Okay, well, guess what? He's getting a lot of attention now. And it's like, oh, okay. I mean, that makes rational sense, but it's a little, I don't know, it's a little hard to, not to swallow because I believe it. Here's here's what's tough about that, is getting the, the shut in to recognize it or helping the shut-in to recognize it, which I guess is your whole jam. <laughs> like, like how, do you, how do you get somebody who's in that kind of trap to be like, oh, because he makes it sound simple, like, well, he just has to change his goals and all of a sudden he'll be a thriving member of society and he could literally do it in one day. And it's kind of like, yeah, well, that seems a little far-fetched. I mean, I, I get the point, but... So this is not going to sound good coming from someone with my job, but it's pretty much impossible to do that. The motivation is that the solution that has been applied to the problem has to become so painful that someone comes to you and says, I'm 19 and I'm actually miserable in this situation. If they're 19 and just fine in their sort of shut in basement life, there's not a lot I can do about that. So I mean, from a therapeutic perspective, you're sort of unlocking this really, really important truth, which is that every behavior, every every solution that people are using in their lives does solve some problem. So, you know, in a case of a kid who is a failure to launch, they're the glue that's keeping keeping their parents' marriage together, right? The kid knows on some level, if I move out, mom and dad aren't going to have any anything jointly holding them together anymore. So I have to stay here to keep this intact. And so when we're trying to like solve that kid's problem, if I was called in to work with this family, I'm not going to work 
with the kid because it's not actually the kid who he becomes the in our language the identified patient but it's it's not him who's broken necessarily it's the whole family system that's fragmented but we can apply this situation to companies too or to group any group of people or even our own individual psychology like the things that we do over and over that seem counterproductive, they are a solution to something. We just have to correctly identify what problem they're solving and decide if that pattern is painful enough. Yeah. So this maps to a business sort of truism that my last boss from maybe 15 years ago, uh, when I first started as a fledgling consultant, and we were dealing with some client that had, they were doing something that just seemed ridiculous from the outside. He's like, I know it seems crazy, but he's, he's, if you ever go into a company and they're doing something that seems crazy, they're not stupid. You just don't understand the motivation. But there's one, there's one there. It might be politics. It's good duct tape. You just don't know what it's holding in. <laughs> right. And, it's, and it seems so easy from the outside to be like, well, you shouldn't do A, C, B. You should go A, B, C in this process. Like, duh. But there's a really good reason. I mean, good is the wrong word. There's a powerful reason why they go ACB and make this really inefficient process, whatever, because Karen in accounting would be threatened if she felt like her job was going to get eliminated. So we just appease Karen with this less than ideal or less not maximally efficient process. And then it's like, oh, okay. And if you don't figure that stuff as a consultant, if you don't figure that stuff out, you're not going to help. You're not going to make any real change. You're going to be, you're going to waste their money. Yeah, it's so it's fascinating to see to see those sorts of things show up in like organizational psychology, if you can call it that. Well, anytime humans are present, <laughs> there's there's some attempt at getting through life with like paper clips and scotch tape. Like, because we are all, I mean, getting back to this first issue of you're not defined by your past, we aren't defined by our past, but we're all working with those variables. And so we come to our grown-up problems with all manner of, of baggage and beauty and scars and whatever. And so it sounds very like maybe oversimplified to say we're all just working it out the best that we can. But I find that to be true over and over and over. And my job then as a clinician or as a consultant just becomes like helping people to step back from the minutia of what they're doing and to name the pattern and observe the pattern and basically ask the question like, is this what you choose now that you see and you aren't doing it automatically? Is this still what you choose? Which is often why the like boot camp approach has some utility, but might you might bump up against every resistance in the book when people are doing it for you rather than because of their own innate choice. Right. Yeah. And you see, I see it all the time. I mean, like any kind of online training, it's hard to get people to stick with it because of course I can't, I can't get them to stick with it. So I try to set up, you know, like if you think of a, you know, I do online seminars and stuff like that. Like I could do these things as just videos and send them out and be like, oh, here's a 300 bucks, download the videos, go through them yourself and you'll be a better person at the end of it. I know that doesn't work. Like, so it's just the, the completion rate, the success rate, even watching all the videos, the numbers are so bad that I'm like, oh, God, that'd be really easy for me, but it wouldn't really do anything for hardly anybody. Something like 5% of the people would even watch all the videos. So the approach that I've been using is taking a cohort style approach where people are kind of like interacting with each other and there's a culture and there are norms. You've just established a social community. <laughs> right, exactly. And 
you know, it wasn't my idea. I'm totally copying other people who have done it before me. But the engagement level is dramatically different because people feel this pull. It's almost like I set up a situation where people can be reactive productively instead of having to be proactive. So they're just like, oh, I kind of owe it to the team to show up. And I feel, oh, geez, I can't believe I'm so far behind. You could get lots of people who are behind. They're just apologizing constantly, but then they do it. So it's, it's fascinating, which reminds me of probably the overarching issue of the book, or not issue, but the philosophy is the thing that kept coming up in the book is that like every problem is an interpersonal relationship problem. And that's like, we probably can't even unpack that. But it was one of those things where at the beginning of the book, you're like, no, but then toward the end, you'll start to be like, well, I do believe that su the subjectiveness of reality, or at least the subjective nature of my reality. And then it's like, okay, well, if no one else was around, really, what problems would I have left? It's kind of like, huh, it's a very big picture thing. And it's, it seems like a really good tool if it's true. And I, I kind of feel like that might be a useful way to look at things. Like a helpful hypothesis. Yes, thank you. Exactly. It seems like a potentially helpful mental model or something to be like when somebody seems stuck and then it's like, okay, let me sniff around for any kind of relationship things here. How does your spouse feel about this? Oh, she doesn't like it. <laughs> huh, I wonder why it's hard for you to <laughs> launch this thing. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I think about every element of business, whether it's selling or pricing or, I mean, you of all people know that value-based pricing is so much about a human exchange, that there is no absolute value for anything. Like we cycled around, but breakdowns in leadership, breakdowns in communication, all of that stuff is about how we interact with each other. And to some extent, I would add our own internal relationship with ourselves. And bringing it back to Adler, I think that's where his work really, really holds up the test of time because he was kind of the first to bridge this internal psychology, our intrapsychic battles between our motivations, between our drives. He's got space for that, right? He's got space for the old, the narrative that's in my mind and the way that that gets in my way. But then he also creates all of this space for recognizing that we are one entity in context. That was really radical for his time. Yeah, because I, I like that too, where he thought that the individual was the indivisible, the atomic level of this. I don't get the impression that he would disagree that there was a thing like the ego or the it or anything. He's like, it just doesn't make sense to to try to address just the ego because it's all tangled up together. You can't, it's just not divisible at that point. It doesn't seem helpful or useful. Well, ego would be the inferiority superiority continuum, but it was Adler who says that ego develops not sort of in a vacuum in terms of our own individual development, but in response to our environment. So one of the things that has not held up super well in terms of the research literature, but Adler spent a lot of time thinking about family constellation. Like if you're the oldest kid or the middle kid or the youngest kid, or you're the kid following a kid that died. I mean, all of these different ideas because of that placement, he thought laid the groundwork for your ego development. So again, that's the individual developing in context, which was super different than Freud. Like Freud, the most interactive part of Freud was like the point at which you did or did not have an attraction to your opposite sex parent and how you worked that out. But that wasn't really about a relationship with that person. That was just really your own little baby mind getting a little trippy. So I'm glad you liked the book. Like, so it sounds like you would give it kind of a, a two thumbs up review, something that you think listeners would like. Two thumbs up review. 
I think I've said, like, there's some stuff that's hard to swallow at first. And then I think by the end, I'm kind of like, okay, I get the argument. Applying it maybe is a different story, but there are definitely some, there are definitely some patterns I've seen in my own life, from my own experience, and it created a framework that those all plug into. So it's like, oh, wow, like these 10 things like plug into this framework really well. And it, do, it doesn't mean the entire framework is like right to me. It doesn't mean the whole thing's right, but it does help me kind of like put them all in context and get them organized. And then perhaps look at other places kind of like, okay, filled in these seven holes and here's this empty one. Let me look into that one and see if there's something that's useful. It's kind of like I went to music school and I used to play with lots of sort of self-taught musicians. And they would be like, you know, they'd be like struggling, like, well, something's wrong with this song. And I'm like, yeah, you don't have a subdominant chord, like throw a subdominant chord in there. And they do it and they'd be like, whoa, that's exactly what it needed. And I'm like, yeah. It's the magic of music theory, bro. Exactly. So when I, when I see a theory, you know, music theory and like, here's how the Beatles songs fit into it. You're like, oh, cool. And it's the same kind of thing where it's like, here's this theory. It's not a question of right or wrong. It's useful. You know, is this useful or not? I'm like, wow, a lot of my a lot of my experience plugs in here much better than other ones that I've come across. And so like, well, all right, well, what are the gaps and are any of the gaps useful? So it's kind of like looking for the subdominant chord in the Adlerian theory. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. So I would definitely recommend reading the book. It's it's a quick read, really, really interesting. And it's kind of opened up the door. Well, it opened up Dorothy's conversation and kind of like, eh, how deep do I want to go in this Adler thing? Yeah, I think Adler really holds up. The main criticism of him in the field is he wasn't very systematic in his approach to treatment. So he sort of has this lovely theory that has all of these layers and levels and, you know, people like me really love, but I, my brothers and sisters in the profession might come back and say, yeah, but it doesn't work. (laughs) Well, or just like, it's not complete. Like he didn't, he didn't fully flesh it out, but it's, it's still a really great framework that I think can be a great jumping off point in a coaching practice or in just your own self-development. And I use it all the time in my clinical work for sure. Hey, thanks for the conversation. Fun to talk to you about it. Yeah. Thanks for helping me like kind of <laughs> kind of like untangle it. There's a lot to it. Yeah. There's a lot of layers for sure, but it sounds like this book really unfolded it in a way that was really accessible. Yeah. I think people should really check it out. What are you working on right now, by the way, just as like a quick little addendum to this podcast, I'll do it in the intro too, but what are you excited about? Where can people pay attention to what's going on in all things in your land? Yeah, my main thing is I, I just write all the time now. I'm trying to help independent professionals stop billing for their time and start pricing their work so that they can actually build profit into their business. So they're not in this hamster wheel and just like working harder than ever, never getting ahead. I'm really, really, I'm on a mission to rid the world of hourly billing. I can't stand it. I think it's terrible for everyone. I love it. Yeah. So that's my main thing. And like in terms of activities, I just write like crazy. I've been writing a daily mailing list for three years and just constantly writing and trying to come up with courses that help people break through the perfectionism and just ship stuff and get feedback and find ways to create value and then fund their mission, whatever it might be. Well, fantastic. I've been a fan of your work sort of on the sidelines for many years. And you've been on the podcast before. I'll have to put in the show notes which episode that was. Somewhere in the 40s, maybe. Now that we're at episode like 245. But yeah, thanks so much for joining me. And it's always good to chat with you. Yeah, same here. Likewise. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode of the podcast. In the meantime, feel free to check out zenfounder.com 
for lots of resources about the kinds of conversations that we have on the podcast. You can get information about working with me, about maybe joining a Zen tribe. It's sort of like a mental health boot camp for entrepreneurs. We also have lots of content on our blog, links to resources in our courses and books for sale. So check us out there and we hope to provide anything and everything that you might need to make the entrepreneurial life a little bit easier.